Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It is a gorgeous day out there. The heat seems to be a memory for now, although it's coming back tomorrow. The sun is shining. There's a breeze in the air. Wow, it's beautiful out there. And it's going to be good in here as well with good conversation here on 94 WIP. And when we come back in just a bit, photographer and his adventures, Joe DiMaggio, not the baseball player, rather Joe DiMaggio, author and legendary photographer, his new book, Fill the Frame. He's going to talk about photographs and a whole lot more celebrities he's met. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back. It's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. Photographers, photography. A lot of people think it's simply a matter of point and poke, but there's a lot more to it, and we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more with my next guest, Joe DiMaggio, author, legendary photographer. Good morning, Mr. DiMaggio. Hey, Peter. How are you this morning? What a beautiful, beautiful day. Absolutely. Now, first of all, totally unrelated to photography, it's got to be tough having the name Joe DiMaggio. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, the story goes, um, we had 50 different stories when people would say, you related to Joe DiMaggio. And, um, and over my lifetime, you know, you talk to your, my dad and stuff like that. I met, I met the ball player approximately 30 times in about a 30-year period. And uh, when my dad passed away, uh, all of the relatives got together. It turns out that my dad and Joe D. were second cousins thrice removed. Now, exactly what that means, I really don't know. I mean, it must mean something, but, uh, I mean, Peter, you and I are related, you know. I mean, we're brothers, we're sisters, we, we all kind of live together on the planet. So he was an amazing uh, individual, and uh, un- unfortunately, he was not particularly fond of me. Uh, and the problem with that is I work for Sports Illustrated, and he did not like Sports Illustrated. It seemed that uh, Sports Illustrated, in the day, um, used to harp on the fact that, uh, you know, of Marilyn Monroe, and he didn't like anybody who would talk uh, even positive or negative about Marilyn Monroe. So every time he would see me, he would relate me more towards the magazine. And uh, it was it wasn't the easiest thing in the world. And as far as you know, meeting other people in the business. Uh, I went to photograph Leo DeRocha uh, back in the 80s, and uh, I was shooting in Los Angeles, and um, uh, one of my assignment editors called up and said, listen, we want you to go up to Palm Springs and photograph uh, Leo DeRocha. Now, to be honest with you, I did not know that much about Leo DeRocha, so I called my dad who was uh, an administrator at, at, at a high school, also coached baseball, and one hell of a baseball player in his own right. And he gave me um, the Western Union version of uh, Leo's career. And I showed up uh, about 9 o'clock in the morning, and Leo opened up the door at Palm Springs, and Frank Sinatra had just left about 1 o'clock in the morning, so, which is pretty impressive when you go to visit somebody and Sinatra was just there. And, um, and he said to me, Joe D., how are you? He said, what did you think about that team in 29? <laughs> and I, I looked at him. Now, I knew what he meant, murderer's row. I knew that. It was, it was the problem was 1929. 
my God, uh, I was born in 45, so it, it's pretty hard for me to talk uh, with any intelligence about 1929. And, uh, you know, it took me the better part of an hour to convince Leo uh, that uh, I was not Joe D., uh, the baseball player, and didn't know much about 1929. It, he turned out to be an ex extremely interesting character, and, uh, and you, you, you will appreciate this, and I think your, um, your listeners would appreciate it. Uh, I said to him at the end of the shoot, I said, uh, Leo, I said, you're a beautiful human being. You seem to be an absolute sweetheart, and uh, I really had a great time. I said, you don't really believe nice guys finish last. And he didn't physically grab my throat, but he grabbed the, the collar of my shirt, and he pulled me very close, and he said, listen, you blank, 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 you got to understand something. Nice guys finish last. Understand it. And I said, well, we're going to have to disagree because I know a lot of great people that happen to be nice people, and uh, I, I don't think that. Well, he was vehement about it. And here we fast forward, I guess, 35, 40 years later, and I'm saying, well, hell of a guy, but, you know, nice guys do okay, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how do you become a professional photographer? I mean, it is more than point and poke, or poke and point. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, in the day, uh, and, and we're now going back, I mean, I started – you know, I took my first snapshot at about seven years old. I sold my first photograph at around, I guess, 15 and a half. I wasn't quite 16. It was for a lot of money, $7.50. And uh, when I got out of college, I, I made an executive decision that I didn't want to teach history, and this was not something that I really wanted to do. Uh, I mean, I wanted to go do something else. So the, the goal was to see the world, to be healthy and to be happy uh, for the balance of my life, and get my doctorate degree with traveling and meeting other people because, you know, the world is just filled with just so many different people that are doing so many different things. So it's, 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 a, it's similar to, to, to being a doctor or a lawyer or a candlestick maker or a bank, baker. It's hard, hard work. Uh, I happen to be very lucky in that many of my mentors took me under their wing. I mean, some, you know, the Alfred Eisenstadt's of this world, the W. Gene Smith's of this world, uh, who some of the greatest photographers of our time, uh, and, and they explained to me what the protocol was. And the protocol is very simple. You know, the first five years, uh, two and a half, first two and a half years, you're not going to make a nickel, dime, or a quarter. You're going to basically be an intern, a, a, a slave. And, and then you've got another two-and-a-half-year period where you may make a little tiny bit of money, and then five years later you're going to start making uh, what was you know, a living. But it, it, it's like, Peter, it's like anything else. It requires hard, hard work. You know the old adage about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. And that's what you have to do. You have to learn all of the basic fundamental rules of lighting, composition, structure, communication. You have to learn all of these rules. Once you've learned them, once you've mastered those rules, then what you have to do is throw them out. <laughs> you got to throw them out, and you have to develop your own style. And it's, it's not as easy as it sounds, but you, know, you, you really have to develop a style, and, and people have to recognize you for what you do and how you do it. Uh, 
hard work and practice. What I recommend to anybody out there, uh, amateur photographers, in my opinion, are some of the best photographers in the world. Professional, or what they call professional photographers, um, they can be very, very good. Amateurs are motivated by their heart, their soul, their gut, their stomach. That's their motivation, their family, their kid's soccer game, um, their daughter's uh, engagement party. So their motivation comes from a different, you know, they're not, well, you know, people say, well, what are you? I said, well, I'm a whore. I go, what do you mean? I go, well, I'm a photographer who gets paid for my work. Uh, it's a joke, but there's some serious, you know, there's serious overtones there. Uh, amateurs do it because they love it, and, and a lot of them generate some really fine photographs. But how did you end up professional as taking pictures of the famous? You easily could have taken baby pictures in the mall for a living. Well, you know, I, I, again, it goes back to motivation. I, I, I just, right place at the right time, um, I had just photographed uh, on my own without an assignment um, Joe Namath. And um, I'm photographing Namath at about two weeks later, I was on the subway platform, and there was literally no one on it. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning, and, and the rush was over in Manhattan. And there was a gentleman with a briefcase walking back and forth on the platform, and he was cursing. I mean, but really cursing. Blank, blank this, son of a blank, blank that, blank, blank. I mean, he just went on and on and on. And at one point, I genuinely thought that, that he was maybe, be considering throwing himself in front of the next train that came by. So I, I went over to him. Uh, you know, New York New Yorkers are pretty warm people one-on-one. -on -one. They get a little antsy when you get a, a mob, but one-on-one -on -one they're pretty good people. And I said, hey, brother, I said, uh, anything I could do for you? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, do you have any blank, blank photographs of Joe Namath? That's what I blank, blank need. And I said, yeah, I do. He goes, what? I said, yeah. I mean, I, I photographed him last week. I got some pretty good stuff. And the guy just radically changed his, um, his, his modus operandi. He said, how quick can you get him? He took out his business card. His name was Tom Reese from American Airlines. And um, so I went back to my home, which was not my studio at the time, and collected the photographs and brought them to, I think it's 36th Street. It was 36th Street dropped him off, and uh, he just went crazy. And while I was standing there, he did the layout for, um, for the magazine article. And believe me when I tell you, right place, right time, extremely lucky, okay? Uh, and, I, and I would not, I mean, I was lucky. And that really started my career in a very positive way. So I would guess that that had something to do with, um, you know, with, with starting the career. And, of course, you know, reading Look Magazine, reading Life Magazine, and being very impressed, National Geographic, and being very impressed with, you know, the, the, the photograph is more than a thousand words, you know, with that cliche. Um, you know, a still photograph is embedded into your psyche, and it really doesn't go anywhere. I mean, once it's there, it's there. You may not think about it all the time, every day, it's there. So still photos are extremely powerful, and I think that that's really what, you know, what we try and do with, with still photography. What I've tried to do with my photography is, is to try and come up with something that will motivate people to do something else or, 
or to show them uh, positivity in another human being, or in some cases negativity, where somebody is kind of um, where not the nicest thing in the world, and maybe that'll motivate people not to go in that particular direction. The most intense, motivating, exciting photograph you ever took. Wow, Peter, Peter, Peter. That's that's really very hard. Some of the photographs that got some very serious play at uh, Sports Illustrated and Time Magazine Pictures of the Year uh, are really great photos. I'm not sure that, that that's really the proper answer, um, but we'll talk, we'll talk about one because a lot of people know the photo. Uh, I, I had photographed Jerry Cooney, and uh, Jerry was effectively my next-door neighbor for about, I guess, eight or nine years. And Jerry and I, the, the heavyweight boxer, the, uh, the number one challenger for the heavyweight title back in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, so I, I spent a lot of time with him. I did a lot of covers with him and a lot of stories. And I wound up going to the biggest fight of the decade back in those days, which was the Cooney-Holmes fight. Um, and I did not have an assignment for Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated sent approximately six people and uh, six assistants, approximately. So they really, you know, and they had their staff people. So they really didn't need a contract photographer, and they really did not need a freelance photographer. And um, so I was there working with Jerry and the promoters, and um, the fight went on. Unfortunately, uh, it was not a good fight for Jerry. And uh, somewhere around the 13th round, he took a, an overhand right, which was a pretty amazing punch. And uh, I didn't, you know, it, 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 it kind of ended the fight. At the end of the fight, the, um, the photo editor from Sports Illustrated was there, and she had collected, she was collecting all the film from everybody ringside. So there were approximately, normally there's about 12 to 13 photographers. On this fight, there were, I think, closer to almost 20. And she collected everybody's film, and I did not give her my film. Uh, and uh, John Iacono came over to me, a good friend of mine, also a neighbor. And he said, Joe, why don't you give her the film? I said, well, you got enough film there for 10, you know, 10 articles. He goes, give her the film. You know, she'll process the film, and it'll be good for you. So I, I, Johnny convinced me to give her the film, which I did. The next morning, you know, I got up and I was in Las Vegas and flying back to Chicago and then into Manhattan, and uh, I called my editor at SI, and he said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. I said, what's the good news? He said, you've got probably the greatest cover, boxing cover, that's ever been done for this magazine. I said, you're kidding. And he goes, no. I said, what's the bad news? He said, you've got one of the greatest covers that's ever been done for this magazine, and that's going to turn around to bite you on the ass. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, I've seen it happen before. Well, he was right. Um, the cover went on to outsell the bathing suit issue that year. Um, I mean, the whole world was interested in this, and Time Magazine picked it up for pictures of the year. So that photograph, kind of more than many of the other photos that I did, you know, gave me some, I guess, instant, not instant popularity, but instant uh, 
recognition throughout um, not only the United States but the world. And um, again, that's the good, good news, bad news. It turned out in many, many ways um, it was kind of the end of my career at Sports Illustrated. It wasn't. That ended probably in 1994, you know, which was you know, another 14 years. But they, they then used it as a yardstick for everything. And, uh, you know, people say, well, you know, to get that kind of a photograph, you have to be lucky. And to a certain extent, that, that's true. You, right place, right time. And you've got to be, but you've got to show up and you need to know all of the basics on how to make this thing happen and how to execute under severe pressure. It's all about the pressure. Can you do it? And can you do it every day when it's eight below zero or when it's 115 degrees? And uh, can you do it in a war zone? Can you do it? You know, you've got to be able to do these things, and it's got to come very natural to you. So that probably, from a recognition point, uh, was one of the photographs. There, there are many others. Uh, and the photograph you're describing probably, I haven't taken it yet. You know, I, I, try to keep, I try to think in terms of, you know what, now, I mean, it's a, different, it's a whole different atmosphere now. Uh, when I made the switch over from analog to digital, I mean, that was a major, major change. So everything I did from, let's say, 1959 until 1999, um, we're now redoing all of those things in a digital format. So the, the, the most exciting, the most revelating you know, uh, image is going to happen. It, it's going to be in the future. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, an extraordinary photographer, Joe DiMaggio, has got a book, Fill the Frame, and we're talking about filling the frame every day. All right, Joe, um, no women subjects? You no talk women? Men. Any women? My God, of course. <laughs> Half the world is women, and I love women on every, on, on every, all, I love them all. You got to love women. You absolutely have to love women. Um, probably, uh, I mean, the one that comes to mind was uh, Natalie, uh, Natalie Komenich, uh, the 1976 Olympics in Montreal. Uh, Komenich, uh, an amazing, an amazing young lady, uh, very, very, very young. And, and thrown, thrust on the stage from Romania um, <coughs> uh, in, in gymnastics. And she just, oh, my God, uh, it, I can't, it, I'm actually, just to even think about how beautiful, how lovely, how petite, and what she could do on the parallel bars, what she could do on the full-hour exercises. She was just an amazing, amazing athlete. And, um, you know, I was privileged, absolutely privileged, not only to photograph her, but to do a book on her uh, a, a couple of years after the Olympics. So that, uh, that in itself was uh, a great, uh, you know, I, I can't, I, I'm actually speechless when I think about it. Uh, and, and from a photographic standpoint, I did not do her justice. I, I mean, I got acceptably good photographs, but nothing great. There, there wasn't anything there that was, really magnificent, in my opinion. Uh, and then again, you know, I was 27 years old, and uh, you, you get, uh, you know, photography is like anything else. You kind of get better with age. Um, it's not that you can't generate a great photograph at 26 or 27. It's just uh, 
the experience, the, the, the better the ex the longer you go and the more you learn. You never, in my business, in my profession, you learn every day. Today, you know, I got up at 4.30, uh, I took a shower, had a cup of coffee, and went outside and said, wow, what a beautiful day. It's a great time to shoot. You know, 5.30 in the morning is a great time to shoot. So you, you know, everything you learn, you could put it to today and what we're going to do today or this afternoon or a thunderstorm tonight. But women, yeah, I love photographing women. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm now working on a series of photographs, which is something I've, I've only done maybe six times in the last half a century, which is um, what we call, it's nude photography, which I incorporate into my normal photography for a museum show that's coming up that I'll be doing. And uh, so I've had some, some models come through the studio. And it, they're very, very simple, clean, elegant photographs. Um, one, one set that I did back in the day was shown in San Francisco. Let's call it 1978-79. And, um, and I was behind the stage, and there were about 40 photographs hanging. And what came by were um, four nuns in San Francisco. And I went, oh, my God. The nuns are going to look at these nudes. I'm in a lot of trouble. Oh, I'm in a lot of trouble. So somebody came back, the public relations person came back and said, there are a few people who would like to talk to you. So they pulled me over to um, a, a gentleman who was doing a radio interview, and I did the interview for him. And um, the nuns came over and just said, we just want to tell you we love the photos. So it's, you know, when things are done properly and when things, uh, you know, are good, then it, it, it's across... All, all, you would like to think that all people like them or they're acceptable. Let's put it this way. They're acceptable to all people. And um, it, it's, again, something that you have to learn. Must be tough, though, being a professional photographer, flying all around the world, and having a family life as well. Wow. You hit the nail on the head. Um, very, very, very difficult because a, I, there was a period of time, Peter, where um, I was on the road 35 weeks a year out of 52, and, uh, you know, you're gone for two or three weeks, you come home for six days, and then you're back on the road. Um, it, uh, it, it took a toll early, early, early in my career, and um, uh, I, my first marriage ended in a divorce, um, and which, which was uh, not, not a good thing for anybody, uh, it's 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 a it's tough. That's a, that's a tough nut for anybody. Um, I tried everything that I could do to maintain my relationship with my two sons, and uh, and did that uh, and did that pretty well, I think. Uh, I met a young lady, um, and that young lady and I have been together now for oh boy, for, for purposes of of this show, we'll call it forty years. It may be a little bit more than that, and uh, a great, great, great photographer by the name of Joanne Kalish, and uh, we predicated our relationship on friendship, uh, which which started it started then in, in 1972, and uh, it still maintains here in, in 2018. Uh, we traveled together, we shot together, we shot independently, etc. Uh, she has standalone. 
the big joke at Sports Illustrated is she was at Sports Illustrated approximately 18 months before I was. So the male photographers would kid me in the press room. They'd say, oh, here comes Joe D hanging on Joanne's coattails. <laughs> if it wasn't for Joanne, you wouldn't even get in the door. And, uh, I mean, they do this to this day when I see them. Every time we get, you know, we, we kind of get together, you know, two or three times a year. And, uh, they, you know, they kid me about that, that she, uh, that I, that I you know, she, she got me in the door at SI. And, and the reality is there's some truth to that. I mean, there is some truth to that. She was there before I was. Um, you know, relationship, relationships are like photography. It takes hard, hard work. It takes an effort every day to maintain the relationship, to maintain the business, to maintain the marriage. Um, nothing comes, Peter. Nothing comes easy in this world, and uh, and none of uh, none of the the listeners out there. I mean, you know, we're faced with all sorts of tribes and tribulations all the time, and the end result is hard work. And yes, every once in a while, the luck comes in that, and that helps out quite a bit. And if we took away your camera, what would you do? Oh, my God. Okay, let's put it this way, Peter. I am deathly, deathly afraid of heights, okay? I really am afraid of heights. Uh, I would take a camera and go up 270 feet on the end of a ball on a, um, a crane from Germany to make a photograph uh, when, when the client for a, an annual report and he said to me, he said, you know, can, can you go and, and do this photograph? And I said, sure. He says, well, you have to go. I said, sure. He goes, well, you have to go block to block. And I mean, I could do that. Not knowing what block to block meant. I didn't know what it meant, but I said, sure, I could do that. And I get there, and, and, the, and the crane operator said, okay. He said, I understand you're doing block to block. I said, yeah, I'm doing block to block. He said, uh, and he looked at me, and he said, you do know what block to block means, don't you? And I go, well, not exactly. And he goes, he said, you see that? He goes, that's a block. I said, okay. He said, look up 270 feet. That's the other block. When you go block to block, that block touches the other block. So you're going up 270 feet. Well, it was, it was a day like today, actually, beautiful day. The wind was not blowing. Sky was blue, really nice in the middle of New York City. And we went up. 10 feet, 20 feet, no big, 30 feet. We got to 50 feet, and all of a sudden the wind started coming through New York. And that block to block became, I was green, absolutely green. And what I'm trying to tell you, if you gave me $10,000, the only reason I could do it is the camera. The camera was my parachute. The camera is what allowed me to go up. Without the camera... Not happening, hanging out of a helicopter on 10 or 15 times that I hung out of a helicopter without a camera, not happening, diving down 175 feet, you know, without a camera in the sea, not happening. The camera is my protection. The camera keeps me whole. The camera, uh, by the way, the camera's a pain in the ass. I mean, there's another level of the camera that's just, we try to work with the smaller cameras today. So the camera really protects me. Um, I, I, it, it's hard to even envision doing things without the camera. Having said that, recently, uh, recently I've tried to actually 
leave the camera behind. Uh, what, happens, what happens is you train yourself to look. If I'm, I'm with you, Peter, I will look at you as I'm looking at a portrait of you, an environmental portrait of you. You sitting in the studio with a microphone in front of you, well, how am I going to do this with the glass? Cover the glass to the right, to the left, make sure there's no reflection, and that's how I'm going to, I'm going to do it in black and white. I'm not going to do it in color, and I'm going to get your chip. Well, that's great. Here's the problem. I'm not looking at Peter. I am looking at the S word, which I despise, which is the subject. We don't want to look at the subject. We want to look at Peter. We want to look at, at Komenich. We want to look at, at Cooney. We want to look at the person before we start you know, dissecting them into a photograph. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. And I want to say thank you to Joe DiMaggio. Great pictures, great interview. Thank you, sir. The book, Fill the Frame. And by the way, you can pick it up directly from me. You can get it on Amazon. Give me a call. I'm in the book. I'm on the Internet. And by the way, anybody out there, we're doing private lessons. If anybody wants to uh, learn a little bit more and go to the next level in photography. Peter, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. You have a great show. I love it. Thank you. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back, and it's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. It's 94 WIP. And I'm pleased to welcome back an old, what's becoming rapidly an old friend dear to the show, Dr. John Huber, Chairman of Mainstream Mental Health, a nonprofit organization that brings lasting and positive change to lives of individuals suffering from mental health issues. For a lot of kids, mental health issues can start young. And one of the ways, I think, that it can go in either direction if you're young, is with the notion of a summer job. You let the kids stay around, stay up late, watch television all day, go to the pool maybe, and then come home again and start to cycle all over again? Or you tell them, go get a job. Which is it? <laughs> what do you recommend, Dr. Huber? Well, I think, I think kids need to be goal-directed and working on something during the summer. And for a lot of kids, you know, especially if they do extracurricular things, I think we should we should focus on some of those. I think that benefits them in a lot of different ways. It empowers them. Uh, it gets them a head start so when they hit the ground, you know, whether they're in theater, choir, football, you know, basketball, any of those things, it gets them leg up. So, you know, that's very beneficial. And if they're actually working towards those things and not, like, sitting at their homes playing video games all day, I think that that can be very beneficial. If they're not going to do those things, then we need to start breaking them in, so to speak, teach them how to do that job interview. And uh, now's the time to do it when they don't need it to support themselves and feed themselves. So get them out there and get them exposed to those types of Situations where, you know, they go in there and uh, an employer sits down and works with them. And if they don't get the job, you're there to support them. You're there as a parent to teach them how to recover from that. And I think they can grow dramatically from that as well. So I think it it, it can go either way. But you got to know your kid. You got to be involved with the kid. You got to put the phone down, put the cell phone away and uh, work it out with your child. If they get a job and start making some money, should a parent let them keep the money? Want to charge them <laughs> rent? What should we do? Well, 
Well, I think it's a good time to start your child on some some very basic money management things. Unfortunately, today in in uh, public education and even in, in some situations uh, in college, they don't teach you anything about money management and the value, for example, of of time towards investment, like a 401k, a Roth IRA, that type of thing. Uh, so you can you can actually get your kids a leg up. Uh, unfortunately, our system is such that, you know, if they're going to go look for financial aid or something like that and they have some kind of 401k or, or a Roth IRA, uh, they're, they're going to make them spend that money before they let them, uh, you know, get any kind of financial aid in most cases. Always check with your financial or counselor at the university they're looking at, but uh, it, it may be for not. But get them the basic idea how valuable investing in an early age is for that long-term outcome when they're when they're much older. That delayed gratification thing is very difficult for a lot of these guys. But for a lot of young people, you have no particular experience, particular in quotation marks. Um, the jobs that are out there are pretty crummy, aren't they? Well, those jobs are there for exactly these experiences that we're talking about right here. They're, they're typically temporary type jobs, seasonal jobs, uh, those types of things. They're not careers. They are stepping stones. And, uh, you're right. They are pretty bad for the most part. I remember the worst job I ever had when I was in college, and you know I was in college, was burning the asbestos linings off of used brake shoes. Oh, it was a nasty job. It wow, a, it was a nasty wow. job. Wow, yeah. Well, I built highways during the summer when I was in college, and I was so ready for the first day of class every year. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I finally told a fib to my father and told him I had to go back to school early because I hated that brake shoe job. <laughs> But that's another discussion. All right. So is there such a thing as a good job, bad job for your kid? How do parents tell the difference? <laughs> well, you need to know your kid, you know, because we, we had a list of different jobs that, that are good and bad. But the reality of it is it comes down to your child's personality, your child's aptitude. You know, typically some of the best jobs you can get include activities that are outdoors that allow your child to be uh, respected, that allow them to gain in empowerment as well as keeping them physically fit. And, I mean, who who doesn't like to look at a, a fit person and when you're young and at your prime, that's the way to, to, to work. But then if you can get that in, like, for example, a lifeguard, and all of a sudden people are looking up to them, asking them for permission, to do things, and then you're there for their safety. So unless you are not paying attention, not doing your job, it can actually be a very empowering job. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a job that I did at one point. And uh, I'll tell you, you, you actually have to go in after somebody. It, it'll change your perspective on on your life and, and the value of life. Uh, it's uh, very, very empowering for a lot of people. Well, and depend, no matter what your sex might be, the opposite sex, if you're decent looking, it's going to drool over you if you're a lifeguard. <laughs> well, that's the hope, I think, of many <laughs> of people. But, uh, 
you know, the reality of it is, you know, that, that staying in shape uh, tends to make you a better candidate for those types of things anyway. So, you know, when you're a lifeguard, they expect you to swim a lot and, and get warmed up, and so you get access to water and water parks and those types of things when there's not other people around. And it does lend itself to, to that one positive benefit right there for sure. What about camp counselor? I mean, there's junior camp counselors counselor. and senior counselors. Yeah, camp counselors actually can be very empowering too. I mean, now you, you, you've got a, a bunch of younger kids who are there who, uh, you know, are, are connecting with you. A lot of them may have never been a camp before, and they're looking for advice and recommendations and a mentor. And that camp counselor can be a person's first foray into uh, administration. You know, you're there and you have to make decisions, but you also have to keep the kids happy because, you know, if they don't come back, if they don't enjoy themselves, uh, the camp goes away. So it, it's kind of a balancing act. You're learning how to do it. And it's really great to to do that. I was lucky enough to to do that at one point with sports. And I ended up in actually a little town called Strucka, Pennsylvania, and uh, taught lacrosse uh, a couple of years up there. And uh, a great experience. I got to meet some amazing people. I'm still friends with to this day, decades later, other counselors and, and uh, from around the world. So it was very beneficial for me. But if you're a kid working with other kids, you're also got to deal with the parents. And what do you mean you didn't put my child on first base? And why isn't my child doing this? And why aren't you doing that? Another growth opportunity. But when you hit it right and the parents see what you're doing, it, it's really interesting when you know, other counselors came to me and, you know, a parent actually tipped them for, for being good and, and setting limits and teaching their child to do extra if they want to get ahead in the world, that they have to work harder, those types of things. And, and it's amazing to look at the, those faces and see them grow and develop, whether they're a first-time counselor or they're the camp kids themselves. Yeah. A side trip for a minute, Dr. Huber. What do you think of this trend, counselors, camps, recreation centers, whatever, where there's no winner and no lo- where there's no winner, no loser. Everybody gets a trophy. I think that's one of the worst things you can ever do to a child because whether we want to believe it or not, the kids know somebody won. And what you're teaching them is adults lie and you can't trust them. That's the first thing you're teaching them. The second one is you're teaching them that mediocrity is fine. You don't have to try and strive for any kind of greatness. Uh, So those are two lessons that I don't want our children knowing, period. All right. Bad jobs. Your child comes home and tells you they got this job, and you think, oh, my God, it sounds awful. What do you do? Well, you know, and, and things like that happened in my household growing up. And one of the things my, my dad would do is he was like, well, it's not necessarily the job I would take, but I'll support you doing it. And, you know, as long as you're not going out there and, and harming yourself. And, uh, you know, I think of, of the job of a, a cemetery groundskeeper. Uh, that's kind of a, a scary thing. But I actually had a patient as an adult who really – 
was empowered by that job because he realized he lost uh, his family or some important members of his family at an early age. And he realized how important going and visiting to that, that cemetery and how his family um, was taken care of in their graveside and all that kind of stuff. So he, he took a lot of pride and respect in making sure that other people's family members were respected and the grounds looked good and all that kind of stuff. The problem was uh, he, he, he didn't like the night shifts. Like if somebody had to be interred, you know, the next morning or late in the evening and he was up there after dark, uh, that's a bad place to be with college fraternities and sororities and pranks and things like that. Uh, he, he preferred not to be up there at night. And if you're a young person, uh, that can be a pretty frightening experience, and you may not always get that connection because people don't really want to be at a cemetery, so you're not around a lot of happy people, so it's not always a healthy thing for, for younger people and high school kids. Well, if you've got to be at a cemetery for a job, hopefully only in the daylight hours. <laughs> yeah, with zombies, you need to be prepared for that apocalypse at all times if you work there. Absolutely. Another job. That I've often wondered about is theme park person. No matter where you're working, there's everything from cotton candy sales to being ride starters. What do you think? Well, you know, I think the worst job, and I've I've talked with several people who who had this, was one of the characters when they're in those big old heavy suits, and they're trying to look like your favorite Disney character or or uh, you know Walt any of those fantasy type characters and, and there's not really a person that fits them. So you got these bizarre suits and hot, you know, and most of the kids who are watching them on TV and cartoons, when they see them in real life, it scares them to death. Now you have that issue where the kids you're supposed to be cheering up, you're scaring, but then you get the older ones who know that there's somebody in there and they're working it. And those older kids are going to be taunting and teasing. So it takes a special kind of person. But I'll tell you, you know, when you get that right kid who's been watching Cinderella or Pinocchio and you come out and that kid comes running at you and you are their hero, uh, that can be very empowering. It does take a special kind of person to do that. We were at a theme park and there was a Cinderella-type character there. My son was about 20 months old and he had just stop breastfeeding and it was probably 105 degrees and this young lady dressed up like Cinderella with a, a, a sleeveless dress on a shoulderless dress for that matter bends down and starts to give my kid a hug and he's thinking hey dinner time and he reaches up and grabs <laughs> that dress it was a very I mean the girl was so gracious about the whole thing but man it had to be just dramatic and traumatic for her because <laughs> my, my kid was innocent you know he's just thirsty hey it's a free food let's go for it (laughs) it was a little embarrassing for us (laughs) so really then dr uber the key to kids in summer jobs is knowing your child and supporting him if it's a good job that you think is a good match and if not trying steering him another direction steering them in another direction but some of them their hearts set on it you know they always wanted to be that that cartoon character so support them but when it's not what it's all baked up to be and their perspective has changed, be there as 
not just a parent, but an educator, and they've realized they've made a mistake, be there and push them in the right direction and be supportive of that learning experience that they had. And I think your kids are going to come out just fine. And how do you help your kid if the job is fine, but the boss is a dirty so-and-so? Get an attorney. No, don't get an attorney. But, <laughs> um, you know, we have to learn how to do that. We, we've we all had great jobs with really bad management before, and uh, it's it's a good time to learn it at that point. If, if your kids can't handle it, you know, don't don't force them to keep working for that person. There's going to be another job. They're getting ready to go back to school after summer, maybe go off to college. So, you know, be there. Teach them how to be a good job interviewer, but actually interview the people who are interviewing you while you go through that. And you can find some red flags that say, maybe I don't want to take this job from them in the first place. And the best way to learn it is to have that support so when they do get burned, you're there to help them learn from it again. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber. He's always a good interview and always has sound advice for us. When we're talking about anything relating to our mental health, adult or child, Dr. Huber is chairman of Mainstream Mental Health, and he's got a website. That website, Dr. Huber? MainstreamMentalHealth.org. MainstreamMentalHealth, all one word, dot O-R-G. Always good advice from, advice from Dr. Huber. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. And before we go, transitioning out of conversation to WIP Sunday, I have some things I want to say. Um, when I started out in the radio business a long time ago, I had a show on Sunday nights called Carrie Line. It was about aging issues, and I was struggling to find an audience for it. And every Sunday, almost like clockwork, one nice lady would call up Bunny Cohen from Strawberry Mansion and always have a good conversation, always a relevant question, always good things to say. Bunny Cohen was really Bernice Soffer the first executive director of the Coalition of Advocates for the Rights of the Infirm Elderly, now the Coalition um, Advocates for Rights and Interests of the Elderly. And she was an expert locally and an advocate locally before many people jumped on the aging bandwagon. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting her, getting to know her, and being a volunteer at Cary as well. And she was extraordinary. She cared deeply about people. She could sense a growing trend. She was one of the first people in the Delaware Valley to talk about elder abuse as an example. She was a tireless advocate around the question of abuse of the elderly in nursing homes and boarding homes and took on the issue when other people were hesitant to do that. She also ran a, was responsible for a volunteer program, putting community people in these institutions, because institutions are not a matter of size, institutions are a matter of attitude, and having community and those people in facilities matching with each other. And on a personal note, um, she created an atmosphere where when I, as a volunteer, met a very remarkable person, the volunteer director, and Bernice provided some sunshine to help that relationship with the volunteer director grow and blossom. My dear wife, Ann Tideman Solomon. And 30 years later, Mrs. Solomon now, 
thanks in large part to Bernice Soffer. Bernice, you will be missed. You were extraordinary. And I'm sure you're going to be organizing people up there in heaven to do what they need to do for them to have a good life. So thank you, Bernice. Thank you to your family for giving us you. You will be missed. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. And it's going to be a gorgeous day out there for this WIP Sunday. So matter, no matter where you go, take us with you. Always good conversation. There's an old saying, may you live in interesting times. And certainly we're living in interesting times right now, politically anyway. And my next guest has lived in interesting times before. And I'll be interested in what she thinks about them today. Her name, Beck Dory Stein. She's author of the new book, From the Corner of the Oval. We're going to find out what that's about here on 94WIP. So let me say good morning to Beck Dory Stein. Good morning, Beck. Hi, good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me on. The title, From the Corner of the Oval. You, in fact, worked as a stenographer for Barack Obama, didn't you? I did for five years. How'd you manage that? That's, that's like a job most people can only have a fantasy or a nightmare, but a fantasy about. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty funny, ridiculous story, a Cinderella story, if you will. Um, I was working five part-time jobs in Washington, D.C., and couldn't land a full-time job and applied to a job posting on Craigslist that said it was for a stenographer in a law firm. And I ended up blowing off the interview because my shift at Lululemon ran late. And it turned out that that was the job at the White House as President Obama's stenographer. So after quite a bit of groveling, I got the job and got to spend the next five years working at the White House. One of how many stenographers? Uh, one of five. There are three for the president, one for the first lady, and one for the vice president. And you worked for one of the three for the president? Correct, yes. Who decided who went in when the president wanted a stenographer? We each had, it's, uh, that's a funny logistical question. We each had a reporting day. So my reporting day was Thursday, but we were a good team. So if someone was really excited about um, one specific interviewer or one event, we would switch. But my day was Thursday. So anything that happened on Thursday was mine for the covering. And what was your job? What, what specifically was your job? My job was to record um, all public events, so the daily press briefing, and on-the-record as well as off-the-record briefings with senior administration officials uh, when reporters were in the room, and also interviews with the president and statements by the president and formal remarks by the president. And anytime uh, the president was in the room with a reporter, any member of the press, I was also in the room. Wow, that's a job of awesome responsibility, because at least judging by today, and it's a different administration, Lots of things can go wrong. <laughs> yeah, this administration is a little different. When I started in 2012, President Obama and that team really understood the role of the stenographer and also understood that we were there to protect the White House. So our role was really our first line of defense against the press. So just we were there in case a reporter walked out of the Oval Office and said, the president just said the craziest thing. And we could be like, no, he didn't. We have an official White House transcript, and the stenographer was there, and we have that to read back to you. 
Um, this White House, I stayed with the Trump administration for two months, and they were not so great at understanding we were there to help them. So a lot of times they wouldn't invite us or tell us about interviews with the press. So the first few interviews uh, that President Trump did, I was not, no one, no stenographer was in the room for that. So who knows what happened? Well, certainly one could look at today's White House administration and think the president says something crazy, and then they say, no, he didn't, but there's no stenographer to back that up. I think also their idea of what's crazy is vastly different than what we've considered crazy in the past. It's probably not crazy enough now. The most exciting Thursday you had. Well, so I got to travel to over 45 countries with the president. So there were a lot of crazy Thursdays in there where you end up going to a couple different cities in one day or even a couple different countries in one day. But I guess at the White House, any time that I got to cover President Obama doing a one-on-one interview was really special because it was really just the president, the interviewer who might be David Remnick of The New Yorker or a sports star. Um, Those were really fun days where it's just like you go in and you are ushered into the outer Oval Office and then you all of a sudden you see President Obama and he's like, come on in, guys, and he takes you into the Oval Office and it's just the president, the interviewer, uh, the press secretary, and I would bolt, (laughs) I would put down my recorders on this little coffee table and then I would go to the opposite end of the room and just sit in the chair and try to disappear as much as possible. When you traveled with the president, one Air Force One or a different plane? So it's a... It was fun to write about this because so many people asked about the plane. And so normally we always had a stenographer on Air Force One. So if it was a domestic flight, I would be on Air Force One and I had an assigned seat. It was in the staff cabin. It was great. It was a window seat. And there are no middle seats on Air Force One. So every seat is an amazing seat. But I especially loved mine, um, mostly because it was – facing the huge flat screen TV, and then there was a candy tray in front of me. So I had (laughs) easy access to all the snacks at any given time. Um, But then there's always a stenographer on Air Force One. But for international trips, because so many people were interested in what the president was doing abroad, the press would actually pool together a bunch of money and um, issue a charter. So they would charter a private plane for just the press, and that way they could kind of streamline their travel because Air Force One is able to go anywhere fairly easily, relatively easily than when we travel on our own. And so that means we're not dealing with visas or passports or lost luggage the way that we have to when we just fly on our own. So because the press would charter a plane, they also would bring along extra stenographers because these things were whirlwind and we needed to be in the right time zone. So it didn't really work to have stenographers staying at home and trying to get to the White House at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., because that's what's happening if you're in Laos. Um, If the president's in Laos, we need to be on Laos time. So the extra stenographers would fly on the press charter, which I did a number of times because one one stenographer would swap in all the time for Air Force One. So I got to fly on both, which were really fun. They had their own pros and cons. The pro of uh, the press charter was that the president wasn't on the plane, so people could kind of kick back, and even if some news broke, you were on a plane, there was only so much you could do, whereas when you were on Air Force One, you had to be at the ready at all times, which was really hard on a you know eight-day swing to Asia when you're trying to sleep on the plane, and you just know that in any second, you got to be ready. 
certainly working for the president, meeting the president is an extraordinary thing. But were there other extraordinary people you met? Absolutely. I think writing this book, it was incredible and so exciting to get to write about my female friends who were older, who had been in the White House longer than I was or had come when I came, but had this amazing set of skills and backgrounds and experiences. And so they're the true heroes of my book because it's so easy in that environment to kind of stay focused on what you have to do and feel like you're the busiest person or you're the most stressed. And I had a handful of women who were, you know, quote unquote, more important than I were, had much more responsibility than I did. And yet were always looking out for me and kind of keeping me along with them and looking out. And those are the true heroes. So there were tons of people besides the president who left a lasting impression on me. What impression do you have of the president now looking back, President Obama? So when I first started, I was so scared because I, he had actually spoken at my, uh, graduate, my college graduation. And I thought he was really cool. It was 2008. And then I went and taught in New Jersey for two years and kind of was doing my own thing, not paying much attention. So then when I landed this job at the White House, I was I stopped dead in my tracks on the first day and was like, oh, God, like, what if he's not as great as I think he is? I, I only know him as this public figure. Maybe up close he's going to be a horrible, greasy politician. And within minutes of my first interaction with him, just being in the same room, not even interacting, it was like, oh, my God, he's even better than I thought. He's kind. He's generous with his time. He's so funny. And he's brilliant. And so looking back, none of that changed. But over the course of five years, I just got to see him prove who he was over and over and over again in all these different scenarios, in all these different countries. He was the same person in every single room he walked into. What you saw was what you got. Yes, absolutely. The biggest misconception, though, about Barack Obama that you found? Um, I would hear from people. So we always had these motorcade uh, drivers. And for the Press One van, we had volunteer motorcade drivers. Obviously, Secret Service was driving the Beast, which is the big black limo the president rides in. But for Press One, they were like, we can just give this to whomever. And so we would have these volunteer drivers. And sometimes they were actually pretty lukewarm on the president. And they'd be like, well, he's really aloof. Like, I've heard some things that he's just really aloof. And I was always shocked by this. But what was really fun about these volunteer drivers is that they actually got to take a picture with the president after they had driven all day. They would pull all the drivers aside, and he would do a big group photo and spend some time talking with them. And I loved that part of the day because at the end of it, <laughs> my volunteer driver would come back and I'd be like, so how was your photo? And, he was, and they would every single time be like, oh, my God, everyone has it wrong. He's so nice. He's so warm. And he's so funny. Like, he took the time to ask about my kids. And so that was really fun because the one time I ever saw that misconception up close, it was always (laughs) rebuked in the same instance. While the president was your major responsibility, ever have any interaction with Mrs. Obama? I did. I had, I traveled with her a few times over the course of five years. (laughs) All the stenographers got sick, especially after all the travel. So there were a few times where my colleague who usually covered the first lady was sick and I would do her trips. So that was really fun because Mrs. Obama, luckily, you know, she didn't have any problems. Everyone loved her as far as um, misconceptions. But up close, she's the same as the president where she's just really funny, really sharp, 
and so kind and warm. And what I especially loved about her, because I had taught high school English before this job, was she is so good with kids and especially with teenagers. And there is no tougher audience than an auditorium full of teenagers, and she just levels with them. And, like, within five minutes of her talking to a teenager, they are smiling, they are opening up, and it's incredible to watch. I mean, it's pure magic. You can't teach that. What advice would you have for a young person today who was applying for a job as a stenographer in the current White House? Does that mean they're looking on Craigslist? What does that even mean? Um, I don't know how the – oh, you know what? We actually got – so we were contracted. So this wasn't like a special President Obama administration Craigslist post. My boss had been there since Reagan. There was a kind of separation of powers. And then we were brought into the White House in 2012 or 2014 because of the sequester. Basically, when the government shut down, they were looking for ways to um, – not spend as much money on the press office, and they found out, oh, we have this middleman. Let's just bring the stenographers in. They come here every day anyway. So now it's actually an official White House job. So first of all, if you're looking for a job as a stenographer right now, you're not going to find it on Craigslist. Apologies. I think I'm the last Craigslist stenographer. But um, if you are currently a stenographer or hoping to be a stenographer in the Trump White House, you're in great luck because he uses very small words and also doesn't invite us to a lot of things. <laughs> so the workload has decreased immensely. Sounds like an easier job currently. It's an easier job, but I found that those two months were the most difficult two months of my life just because I had gone from working for this person who I really admired and respected and thought he was championing the right issues. And the two months that I was at the White House with Trump, I was typing things I wholeheartedly didn't believe in. And so that was actually the hardest two months of my job at the White House was working for Trump. Why did you leave? I left because I could finally leave. When I expected Hillary to win in November. And so when she didn't, it was this ultimate kick in the pants about what am I doing with my life? Anything could happen. What am I waiting for? And so I had been writing really my entire life. But when I started at the White House, I was writing about what I saw just like when I was teaching at a boarding school, I was writing about what I saw. So for five years, I was keeping copious notes and writing all these emails to my parents and to my friends about what I, what was going on and what it was like when you woke up in Laos for the first morning. And <clears throat> when Trump won, it was like, all right, let's get this show on the road. If now or never. I was expecting to stay at the White House and see what Hillary Clinton would do, and instead it was like, I can't do this, but I also can't quit because I don't have enough money. So I had to stay in that job until I either saved enough or until something great happened, and luckily something great happened, which was I landed a book deal. And so it was a Cinderella story to get to the White House and also a Cinderella story leaving the White House where I got a call from my literary agent in March, and she was like, you're done. And I was in the middle of typing a Sean Spicer briefing. And she was like, no more Sean Spicer briefings for you. It was a great day. Sean Spicer, that must have been another incredible experience, typing his stuff. Uh, it, it was. I mean, the two months there were sort of unbelievable in the truest sense of the word, where it just went from, especially, and part of this is just the transition, where I was seeing the Obama administration as this well-oiled machine after eight years of being there, juxtaposed with you're seeing this brand-new administration who had gone to great lengths to not 
cooperate with the Obama administration during transition. So they didn't want to do anything that we had done. <laughs> so they came in and it was like these freshmen who had never even attended school before, where all these offices are left untouched. People are walking around, freaking out, yelling at each other. I had never heard yelling in the West Wing before. And suddenly you're hearing so much yelling. Um, and so, yeah, the whole thing was just kind of crazy. And Sean Spicer was no different, where he was frantic and angry so much of the time. One time he walked by me. I was standing between the outer Oval Office and the upper press office in the West Wing. And he walked through. I don't know what had just happened, but I was waiting for the next event. And I'm standing there, and Kellyanne Conway comes first, and she smiles and says hello. And Sean Spicer just looks at me with this angry look in his eyes. And I was like, oh, my gosh, if he were a little taller, I think he would try to punch me in the face. <laughs> Amazing. Ever encounter Mr. Bannon? I only felt the freezing cold chill of Mr. Bannon behind me. Um, he did never, I never interacted with him, but often, in the, especially in the early days, he was in the room lurking in a corner and just creeping everyone out. So much anger. It was like palpable, but mostly it really was, I would, that feeling of having someone watching you and you turn around and it was always Bannon. It was like, he was like the creepy grandfather in the corner that you're like, oh God, like who is that guy? I would imagine you came out of college and into the Obama White House fairly idealistic. What happened to your ideals? They're still intact. We just have a lot of work to do. That's what That was the coolest thing about working in the Obama administration was that everyone was idealistic and everyone was fighting for this better country and progress, and that was coming from President Obama on down. So everyone was on the same page, and now obviously things are different but it you know i just always kind of whenever i'm freaking out or reading the news and like having a small or not so small heart attack over what's going on i just think about okay president obama would say like this just means we need to be more engaged citizens and work harder to get to where we want to go um i assume you have no children right now no children but if you did have a child what would you tell them about your time at the white house well, a bunch of my friends have kids, so I do get to have this conversation all the time. And I just say that it was the most magical time and that what the big takeaways that I got from working at the White House were to always be kind to everyone. That's really important, and that goes across the board, obviously. And that's what's so fun about working at the White House was sort of, in some ways, like working anywhere else. You know, So it's the tenets of kindergarten are upheld there as well. So be kind to everyone. It doesn't matter how important or not important you feel. Everyone's important when you're on a good team. And so just be kind to everyone. And also, you got to put in the work. And that's what's fun to tell little kids, especially when they're going to their first soccer games or, you know, not doing so well on their first spelling test. It's just like, okay, like this just means we got to put in the work. And that's what I really learned, especially with my own writing, was that if I wanted to write a book, I would need to put in the work, and I would need to take some risks. And that's the fun thing to tell a little kid anyway, where it's just like, oh, yeah, you're going to fail. Like, there are going to be scary moments, but if you keep working, you're going to be just fine. And we're talking with Beck Dory Stein, author of the new book, a book about working as a stenographer in the White House from the corner of the Oval. My name's Peter Solomon. Beck, what's next? I mean, how do you top this book? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, now I'm faced with the challenge of a sophomore album. 
<laughs> I have another book that will come out in a couple of years that I have just started flirting with, but I'm excited for this book to come out, and then I get to write a second book. And I want to say thank you to Beck Dory Stein for service to the country, the Obama administration, and for giving us a peek behind the curtain of what went on in the Oval Office under the Obama administration and part of the Trump administration as well. Thank you, Beck Dory Stein. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Tidman Solomon, associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.